Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Open Mic Podcast. My name is Caroline. I'm a rising senior at Columbia University, and I'm so excited to be hosting the series where we'll be talking about school and life and everything in between. Each episode will feature a new topic and a different guest. And today, I'm so excited to be introducing my good friend, Emilia Gottschall. Emilia, thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you for this opportunity, Caroline. Um, as she mentioned, my name is Emilia, but most people just call me M. I'm 21 and I just finished my junior year at Columbia University, majoring in philosophy and concentrating in psychology and visual arts. Awesome. So today, Em is actually joining us for a super special episode to celebrate the end of May, which is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And so Em is here to talk to us about her experiences as an Asian American creative. So yeah, so Em, do you want to talk a little bit about how you got into being a creative and also your identity as Asian American? Yeah, I think actually both my creative identity and my identity as an Asian American is something that you know developed much later in, in life. Um, you know, I was adopted when I was about 18 months old from China. Um, and I was transracially adopted by a family that is culturally Greek. So growing up, I very much you know identified with that community. And it wasn't until I you know started to realize, I mean, obviously I always knew that my my parents and I looked different, and I always knew that I was Asian, but I didn't quite understand what that entailed until I was a little bit older. And I saw that, you know, even as I constitute my own identity, you know, other people around me will always see first what is on the outside. And, you know, I don't want that to sound like a negative thing because it's definitely something I have come to find beautiful. I love, you know, I love being Chinese. And as I got older, you know, I started joining more things that were Chinese culturally on campus. I um, was a board member of Chinese Students Club and I got in contact with the um, Asian adoptee group on campus. Um, and it's definitely been a big learning experience for me. I'm still, I still have so much to learn and so much I want to learn about my heritage. Um, and then likewise for my creative identity, I always was like a doodler in class. Um, you know, sitting in lectures, drawing, not really, not really paying attention, but saying it helped me pay attention better. Um, and, you know, I originally went in to school thinking I was going to study and go to med school, actually. But then I realized I was really interested in art therapy and art is something that it was just, I was so naturally drawn to it. And I didn't want to force myself to do something or do something that maybe I wouldn't feel was the best use of, you know, my individual proclivities. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I definitely a unique experience. I think being adopted into a non-Asian family, I guess when you were growing up, how did your family, did your family help you connect with your roots? Yeah, I think when I was younger, um, you know, my parents were involved in a lot of adoptee communities and they did encourage us to participate in Chinese culture, but I think it's hard, you know, both of them being white, trying to trying to teach their daughter, who is a person of color, how differently I was going to experience the world. And, you know, I do think they tried their best so that I didn't feel alienated. And they always made sure that it, that I didn't feel angry towards my birthplace, towards my mom, because my birth mother, because there's so many social political issues, but you can't exactly relay those to a young child growing up. 
Yeah, but I think my parents have always, yeah, they've always been supportive to the best of their capacity. Do you also have siblings? Yeah, I have two sisters who are actually also adopted from China. Oh, are they, are you the oldest of the three? No, I'm the youngest. Oh my gosh. How do you think that has also impacted your dynamic? I think for me, it's really, it's really stressed how everything in life is a choice. You know, you think that family is something you're born into. But for me, obviously, my family is not what I've been born into. Um, It's something that I've had to embrace. You know, all these people are not biologically related to me. It wasn't determined. And likewise, returning to embracing my Chinese heritage is something I also had to actively choose because I could just continue my life only participating in the, the basically in like the white identity that I hold, um, just because I think that is something all Asian Americans have to grapple with in the hyphenated American bit of assimilating into this white culture, but then even more so for me being in a family that that is white, you know? Mm-hmm, for sure. And do you think the transition from high school to college, was that really when you started becoming more actively engaged in both your like Asian identity and also your artistic identity? I think the interesting thing actually is in high school, I was very involved in um, like the activist groups on campus, whether that be uh, mainly, for instance, uh, like that was when the Black Lives Matter movement was just, you know, gaining traction. And that was something that was deeply important to me. And I, I didn't realize at that time I mean, not that that movement applies to me, it does not, but I didn't realize at that time how much I would learn from, you know, discourses on race, on power structures, because it's so easy to see things in our life and just see them without analyzing what they are and why they're there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think having an outside perspective on being someone who supports the Black Lives Matter movement but not being Black myself sort of taught me how to have an outside perspective and to think critically about these issues of race. And then only then I realized that that's something I had to integrate into my own life. Mm. Did that carry over into the groups that you joined when you entered into college? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's funny actually too. I think the groups I entered in college were also, were also, I'd like to say that, you know, fate sort of led me there. Um, I, going into college, I always knew I wanted to be involved with Asian groups because I've always felt that pool. But I joined Chinese Students Club because um, a friend of mine in my NSOP, in my orientation group in freshman year, had mentioned something about it. And he was just like one of the nicest guys ever. And he, he I, I distinctly remember talking to him about Chinese food. And he was so patient with me and so open and sharing an understanding of what place I was coming from and understanding that this was my culture that I've been estranged to. And it's something that he, as a member of the culture, could share with me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that really moved me towards those communities, just being drawn to like the personal connections shared between, you know, members of the Chinese community within these cultural clubs and then likewise members of the creative community within the clubs as opposed to being drawn to like joining an organization to join an organization. That definitely makes sense. Oftentimes it's like the more personal connections that really reel us in. I think it's like 
you see an organization in Chinese Students club and you're like, okay, I'm Chinese. So maybe I should join it. But then it's, I feel like it's really the people. Once you get to know them, you are personally connected. I think that's really what bonds you guys together. And you mentioned talking about Chinese food and learning about what goes into each dish or what category each dish is in. I think that just reminded me of, I think it was episode 15 at the beginning of May, so beginning of APOM. I was talking with Pranathi about how there's a range of ways you can get involved with your culture, right? There's no one way to be Asian and there's no like one like category that all Asian people fit into or not like all Chinese people fit into. And so there's a range of experiences and being adopted or being born into like a Chinese American family is very different. It's interesting how your backgrounds can play into how you understand your culture. So I think that's great. Yeah. What have been your favorite memories from CSB or Chinese Students Club? Oh man, that's a hard (laughs) question. I think the thing that I always loved about CSC is how it wasn't this hyper fixation on being Chinese when we were in the group. It was the fact that we were this group of friends who were together planning these activities to share culture with the greater Columbia community, whether it be other Chinese students or students who just want to learn more. Um, And obviously that's a position I empathized with. I think this past year, um, you know, with everything going remote, there was a lot of things that I definitely missed about CSC, but it did present us the opportunity of hosting a um, a speaker panel with Jason Chu and Bohan Phoenix. Um, And I was part of the planning committee for that. And I just remember so vividly being so excited to be part of the event, but even more so, you know, listening to the speakers and also listening to my community members, the types of questions I had for the speakers and the nuance that they presented. Like it genuinely excited me to be thinking critically about being Asian in America with this group of people. Um, Like Jason and Bohan are both rappers. So obviously like they're cool people in, in that themselves. Um, But then on top of that, you know, sharing so personally. And I think I'm someone who's always drawn to those, to that connection on very, like being honest on that one-on-one level. So, you know, moments like that are the ones that I cherish the most from CSC. Another thing too with CSC about just being like a group of friends is that I find that that ease, not that ease, but that that acknowledgement of our identity, but not the fixation of it is something that I and I think many other Asian creators are still trying to learn, especially during the rise in Asian hate crimes. You know, I think people of color can feel such a burden to make everything that they create, everything that they talk about, be about, you know, their struggles, because that is how we are made to move through the world. As a creative, just like I found that comfort place being in CSC in acknowledging my identity, but not having everything be about it. Likewise, for like my creative path, you know, making things that are pertinent to my own experiences, but not forcing myself to create art that is about, you know, that is only about activism. Because I think the Asian American experience, as you were saying, is so much more than that. Mm-hmm. For sure. And what are what have been some recent pieces that you've been working on? Yeah, um, my two most recent pieces with it being the end of the semester were actually my final projects for uh, my drawing and painting class, respectively. Um, 
the one that I hold slightly dearer to my heart is the piece on the red thread. I have yet to name it because it's actually not done yet. Um, but essentially in East Asia, there's a myth of the red thread that says that the pinkies of people who are bound to be together are connected by this red thread. So that, you know, when they do connect, it's like this thread has guided them together. Um, and, you know, growing up, I think my parents always share, not always, but that is something that we heard when I was younger, my sisters and I heard when we were younger um, as a way to sort of maybe ease any sadness we may have felt about being adopted. Cause I think there's a lot of like, oh, your birth mother didn't want you or you were given up. And instead of having the focus on that, be like, a, this is a beautiful choice of love. Mm -hmm. But then I think that also gets complicated um, because it it's so heavily undermines all of the, you know, active effort, all of the troubles that people on both sides are experiencing, you know, I'm sure that my birth parents, whatever the reasoning may be, it's was so much harder than I could ever comprehend. Um, likewise for myself and my own family, you know, our relationship is always being, is always changing, always something that is, it's, it's not something that I, the reason why, I, basically I am not completely content with the red thread, even though I think it's a lovely idea, um, just because I think I, I like to think we have free will and I like to think that things like love and family are things that we work for. Mm -hmm. It ties into the piece because that is basically um, the main symbol in my piece. It's a historical narrative painting on adoption mm -hmm. um, and it integrates you know, other symbols in my life that I find pretty, um, important. I mean, there's the obvious dork imagery, but it also features um, a scene from I'm from Guangzhou and the, the specific area that I was um, left, um, the bridge that I was left on is featured in that painting. Um, so I like to think of it as a piece that is a personal anecdote, but trying to speak to a larger audience of maybe how other adoptees feel about, you know, having closure or not having closure about their adoption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a really beautiful piece. And I'm excited. I hope I can see it once it's done. <laughs> but yeah, and the way that you were talking about it is very philosophical, which I feel like does that tie into your was was it your your interest in these types of symbolisms and these types of kind of painting these narratives that drew you into your philosophy plus visual arts major? Was it kind of going both ways? Like your philosophy and visual arts major kind of helped you develop these types of ideas? Yeah, I think, you know, I went in first being a philosophy major. Um, and for me, philosophy was always something that I just saw as essential to life. I think there's this idea of like a white, like a white tower with the philosophers stored up away in there, but you know, everything, okay, not everything. Some things in philosophy are useless. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> professors. But other things, you know, are so like, you cannot go through life without philosophizing, even as like the everyday person. That's just that's just how life works because we are thinking people, we're thinking beings. Um, and I guess for me, like philosophy has always served as the backbone for how I approach my life in general, not just my career. So 
you know, I'm studying visual arts and psychology right now because I hope to be an art therapist um, in addition to, you know, working as an artist and possibly doing nonprofit work. But, you know, philosophy has always, as I said, guide my life and then it guides my art. So I think as opposed to having like art that is one distinct style, mm-hmm. it's more that my art is all unified by, I don't know, I just feel very dedicated to having my art be meaningful and for it to have, for it to have, you know, layers past just the visual imagery. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about your art therapy or your your goals of becoming, becoming an art therapist, I was reminded of, it, I think it was called Arts and Minds at the Met. Have you heard of that before? I haven't. Yeah, so I'm taking this class over the summer. It's called Contradictions of Care. And so we're talking about how care at different levels works. One of our papers is going to be on an experience at Arts and Minds, which is, I think it is kind of like art therapy. I'm not exactly sure, but for people with dementia, I think it's daily. And now they, they've transitioned onto Zoom. It used to be in person at the Met, um, but it's basically just a time to draw. I think there's like, paintings that they kind of like I don't know is it called like not transcribe but like just like copy and draw in their own style Mm. and watching the videos and seeing the stories of the people who are in it is just very touching so maybe that's something that either you or audience if anyone is interested in checking out yeah for sure I'm I would love if like afterwards you can just send me the information for that class and I'll look up um, (laughs) so thank you yeah of course I think it's interesting that you mentioned that your style of art is not kind of one distinct style, but then you have this whole philosophy that kind of is what your art is built upon. How did you begin to learn how to do art? You know, as of right now, I've only completed three art classes. Um, Cause funnily enough, I sort of saved all my art classes for my senior year, just cause I was like, I want to have a good senior year. So you know, next semester, like I'm doing art. I think a lot of my creative practice was very self-guided. Um, I like many other people like drawing faces. I think a lot of artists can agree faces are so fun to draw. Um, and I think that subject matter then is what helped guide my interests in like what concepts I represent just cause I'm always thinking of, you know, connections between the individual, how the individual knows themselves and then how they connect to their greater identity within society. I'm not sure if I answered the question. I hope I did, but. Yeah, I think, I think that makes sense. I think like, it's interesting now how with the rise of like all of these resources online, you can develop your talent on your own. And I think it's smart that you left all your art classes for senior year, because that would be so fun. I could just imagine like, it's just going to be such a creative year after, and hopefully it's in person. So it's, you can have that full immersion. Hopefully, big fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. What types of resources would you recommend if someone is kind of currently just starting in their art career or they're thinking of potentially pursuing one? What kinds of resources would you recommend? I think, you know, for artists who are just starting in general, you know, following artist advice pages, I know that sounds so cheesy, but it gives so many reminders because I think when you're a beginner entering the art world, everything is so confusing. When you're a beginner at anything, it's so confusing to get started. And there's always this feeling of being left behind. I think that's just a product of, you know, 
how our system of meritocracy has turned out. But, um, you know, following those art advice pages, reminding yourself things like, you know, Picasso made tons of paintings, yet only I think like 2.2% of them are famous. Um, remind yourself things like that. And then for Asian artists specifically, I found a lot of comfort in, you know, Instagram communities. Um, there's a lot of, you know, small zines or zines. I'm not sure how people prefer to pronounce it, but, um, you know, you have Overachiever Mag on Instagram, Rice and Spice Mag. These platforms, you know, combine activism with, you know, celebrating culture and then also with creative expression. And so it's a great way to educate yourself and also to power your creative pursuit. Um, yeah. Thanks for sharing those resources. And just moving back to, I guess we could say, our role as college students, how did you decide on Columbia, on New York City, as a place that you wanted to have your college experience? Yeah. Um, well, I'm from Philadelphia, so I think I've always been very comfortable in cities. Um, and I actually didn't think about applying to Columbia until like two weeks before the deadline. Um, <laughs> And that was like, I ended up visiting Columbia's campus and I was just, oh my gosh, this sounds so cliche, but I just remember being like, I really want to go here. And I mean, I think, I think part of the reason was that I had read about Columbia's, <laughs> this sounds so annoying. I read about Columbia's core curriculum, which I think as a high schooler, not knowing all the nuances um, and all the opportunities for growth within the core curriculum, I was just so attracted to the idea that I would be learning about philosophy, about art and music history as a requirement. Mm -hmm. And I, I really thought that that would guide their whole, maybe the college's you know, approach to education. I think that idea of always pursuing education as a whole and not just you know, pigeonholing yourself to one subject Mm -hmm. was really really attractive to me have you taken all of your core requirements already and out of those what have been your favorites yeah I've completed all of them except the swim test which might be an issue because I actually I'm not a very good swimmer <laughs> anyways I I try not to let that stop me from graduating um out of those I think well I'm biased towards art home, but I actually really ended up liking music home. I, I did do music in high school and middle school, but it was never like, it was it was like a hobby as opposed to a passion. Mm -hmm. um, but for my global core, I took culture, health and healing in East Asia mm -hmm. or East Asian cultures. I'm not sure the exact name. Yeah. And I also took intro to China and both those courses for me were definitely places where I very surprisingly felt like motivated to learn on my own. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, just cause I think maybe people are naturally like egoistic and they're like, oh, this applies to me. I wanna learn about it. So yeah, I definitely, I definitely would recommend taking global core classes and stuff that you know, you're genuinely interested in for those reasons. Yeah, definitely. I'm taking, I still haven't taken a global core. So I think I'm going to take either both my senior fall or maybe like a senior fall and senior spring. But I am registered for intro to Asian American Lit with Professor Cruz, Denise Cruz. 
And I heard that was a really good class. So I'm really excited for that. And good class too. culture, health and healing in East Asia. That has been, I asked a couple of previous podcast guests what their recommended classes were. And I think two of them responded that. So it's like a pretty high percentage. I tried registering for it, but the wait list is so long. Like I think the there's, I don't know how many people are allowed to register, but then the wait list I think was longer than the actual number of seats in the class. So oh, it's like, maybe not, maybe uh, spring if they offer it, but if not, then it's okay. <laughs> wow. That must be, he must be a very happy professor knowing that that many yeah. people take his class. For sure. I don't know if you have an answer to this, but do you have a favorite philosopher or one point that was brought up in class that is still being mulled over in your mind? Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. No to the favorite philosopher because I think you'll find with like everybody in history, like they always had to say or do something stupid. Um, and I, I unfortunately haven't, I'm not super up to date with contemporary philosophers. So I'm sure that they would probably say things more to my liking. Um, but the myth of the eternal return um, as it's presented by Nietzsche in, I think it's the gay science has just, ever since I read about it, it's just like, guided a little bit my life because essentially he's presenting it as a thought experiment as like one day this he calls it a demon but one day this messenger comes to you when you're alone at night in your room and you're upset crying over whatever it may be and this messenger tells you you know this life that you're living now you will have to live this life over and over again eternally you know, and every single life will be exactly the same. You cannot change a single decision that you made. And essentially it's, you know, it's advocating, advocating for how important living in the moment is like maximizing your time. Because if you had to live this life over and over again, you would rather live a life where you feel like you went out and did X, Y, and Z that you wanted to do and not sit in your room being sad over the past, you know? Mm. Um, I don't know. I just... I just find that really, really helpful for me. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll probably keep that in mind too. Like trying not to mull over things that you can't change or maybe you don't even want to change them, but you feel like you want to change them in the moment. But also just like knowing that there's still a future ahead and you can make decisions that you want to make in the future um, instead of wasting that time. I guess you could say wasting the time and thinking about the past. It's, mm -hmm. it's interesting, yeah. A lot of books and a lot of podcasts talk about those types of things. I feel like I need to find, do you have, do you listen to podcasts? I do. Do you have recommendations? I feel like I need to find some ones to get involved in. Oh geez, this is going to make me sound so annoying, but I listen to, when I do art, sometimes I'll listen to this podcast called Philosophize This. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> and the funny thing is, it's literally just a survey of like the history of philosophy, but I just. I don't know. It's something that I don't have to think too hard about because I'm just hearing, you know, what these other people thought. Yeah. Um, and then there's also, um, I haven't listened to this one in a while, but like stuff they don't want you to know about. I think it's a super popular podcast. It just talks about like conspiracy theories, or, like, <laughs> different world events. Because I've been trying to find ones that are, I feel like kind of educational, but also you, like you were saying, you don't have to think too hard about. So I think mm -hmm. those, those sound really interesting. Oh, and maybe just going back to 
like campus life, what has been your favorite campus tradition? I mean, apart from the good old primal scream, which is <laughs> a chemistry tradition, like that was just the first one that popped in my mind. You know, it's funny, I never even like participated necessarily in it. I just think it's, I just think it's funny and sort of cute in a weird way how we're bonding over being stressed. Um, but I've always loved Night Market for mm. not, not because it is a CSC event. It is a CSC event. A lot of people don't know that, um, but just because I remember as a freshman, um, I just thought it was so cool. And so it was so rare to see so many people on campus together bonding over something that wasn't quote Columbia mm. um, and like seeing all the performance groups. Um, it was just like a really special treat. So I, I definitely miss that a lot. Yeah, for sure. Have you been in the planning committee for that when you were on eboard? No. So the way that the board works is like this past year um, is like the level of seniority on the board where you plan those types of events is that was that would have been where I was at last year. Mm -hmm. And I was actually supposed to plan Lunar Gala, the fashion show portion of it. Oh, my gosh. That was so fun. Yeah. And that's how we knew each other before then. But I feel like that's how we sort of reconnected. Yeah. This was sophomore year. I was just wondering because I remember Night Market. My, I think it was either my first year or my sophomore year. It was in one of the vlogs. I think it was like in my October vlog from 20, either 2020 or 20, no, not 2020, <laughs> 2019 or 2018. Um, and I just thought it was so cool because basically like on both sides of like alma mater or like the low steps you have like all of these different vendors that just sell different like foods or there's like games going on. And then in the middle center kind of um, at the end of the night, there's like lion dances, different performances, acapella groups. And I just thought it was so well planned out. And it's just crazy how it's the student organizations that are like doing this and like, I don't know, just like coordinating everything. It's like a lot of work goes into it that I think people might not see from the outside. Absolutely. It's funny. I think I remember watching that vlog of yours, by the way. Really? <laughs> yeah. Gosh, thank you. Thank you for supporting the channel. <laughs> what advice would you have for people who are currently either about to enter the college application cycle or who are preparing to enter college this year? I think this applies also to people who are trying to get jobs, but you know, people are so much more than what they are on paper. I need to remind myself of that all the time. Um, just because I think there's so much anxiety about feeling like, oh, I want to make sure that I'm representing myself here. Or conversely, like, why didn't they accept my application? And so often it's not anything, quote, wrong or something that you are missing. It's like, that's just how life works out. Don't get caught up in like the external, external achievements and like what colleges look like. Just think about who you are as a person, knowing who you are and thinking whether or not a college or a job is the right fit for you. Talking about the fact that we're about to graduate in a year or maybe even less than a year, do you know what you want to do after graduation? That is a fantastic question <laughs> because the answer is like no, but yes. Um, I'm actually graduating after this fall semester. Um, so I think for me, I've still very much been in the phase of like, 
why did I why did I decide to graduate early especially considering I mean I think a lot of us are feeling like our college experience was not what we wanted it to be um but post but post college I'm planning on working for a little bit um just to you know start saving money to then go back to grad school afterwards and I do plan on continuing um, in addition to like a day job which I hope to be in the nonprofit um, section just because there's so many arts nonprofits or nonprofits geared towards providing support for you know survivors of domestic abuse or other minority communities that integrate holistic healing in the arts um, like into their mission statement hopefully working for that type of organization as a day job you know also being a content creator I, I have a TikTok and an Instagram <laughs> casual <laughs> plug so I'm hoping I'm hoping that works well and then in addition I do freelance work and commission work so Nice. Yeah, we'll definitely put those links, those Instagram and TikTok links in the description below. So check those out. Um, and I think that's a fun note to, to end off on. And just thank you, Em, for coming on today to talk about your experiences as an Asian American, as an Asian creative, and also just as a college student and just as M. Malia Gottschall in general. Yeah, thank you to our audience too for listening in on today's episode. If you're watching this on YouTube as a video podcast, make sure to hit the thumbs up and subscribe and leave a comment down below. <laughs> and if you're listening to this on any other podcast streaming platform, then make sure to hit a thumbs up and follow if you can. So we used to do this thing where we would high five at the end of each episode, but then I've forgotten about that for like the past <laughs> five episodes. So maybe we can just continue that today. So we essentially just high five into the camera. Okay. Three, two, one. Clap. Nice. All right. Thanks, Em. And thanks, thanks everyone. Thank you. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye. <laughs>